A recent study shows there's been a 46% surge in hate crimes across the country. And in New York City, that figure more than doubles to a whopping 96%. No surprise, Jewish Americans remain the most targeted group. What's fueling all this anti-Semitism? How can believers make a difference? That's our conversation coming up. Welcome again to The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer, Middle East expert, author, and frequent Israel traveler. Uh, Before we dig into our look at current events, Charlie, what does Passover have to do with us as believers in Jesus? You might think you know the answer, but have you ever really experienced a Passover Seder? Well, this year you can. That's right. Our friends at Life and Messiah have a special offer just for you in the lead-up to this year's Passover. To any listener who signs up at lifeinmessiah.org, they'll send you a free Messianic Passover Haggadah. This booklet will guide you through this ancient celebration to help you see the connections with Jesus, our Messiah, and the Last Supper. In addition, Life and Messiah is making their interactive Passover Seder available to you for free. With this video and the Haggadah, you can celebrate the richness of Passover this year with your family and friends. So visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button for more information and to sign up. That's our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And you know, Charlie, uh, you are looking forward to some extensive travel in the Holy Land. I am. In fact, uh, this weekend, it's Sunday, I take off and uh, we, we are there almost a month okay. uh, for two trips to Israel and a little side trip to Jordan in the process. A uh, little footnote, you'll want to check our Facebook page off, and Charlie refreshes that with lots of great photos and video clips, so be sure you're uh, taking advantage of that. Let's dig into our look at uh, current events for the week. During Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Israel has taken a rather muted position. While Israeli Foreign Minister Yair Lapid condemned the invasion, calling it a grave violation of international order, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett specifically avoided naming Russia in his remarks. Why was Israel's response so muted, especially in light of the condemnation from the U.S. and other Western countries? Uh, Actually, several factors have caused Israel to take a more muted tone. Uh, One reason is Israel's concern about the Jewish population in both Ukraine and Russia. There are as many as 400,000 Jews who are living in Ukraine and about 180,000 Jews living in Russia. Uh, The president of Ukraine is Jewish. Israel's concerned that siding openly with uh, Zelensky could cause Russia to target Jewish people in an anti-Semitic backlash. Another reason Israel's response has been so muted is that they wanted to potentially be available to serve as mediator uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Prime Minister Bennett traveled to Russia and has actually been talking to both sides about ways to end the conflict, though his efforts, at least so far, haven't been successful. And a third reason for Israel's response is because of the Russian forces currently stationed in Syria. Israel's been trying to halt Iran's attempts to establish a military foothold on Syria's border with them and to keep Iran from sending weapons through Syria to Hezbollah. Now, Russia has allowed Israel to conduct airstrikes within Syria with some restrictions, and Israel wants to avoid a confrontation with Russia that would cause them to change that approach and make Israel's task that much more difficult. Now, perhaps hinting at this, Russia's envoy to the U.N. spoke out to condemn Israel's occupation of the Golan Heights, saying they didn't recognize Israel's sovereignty over the region or over Jerusalem, Hmm. and that really was a warning to Israel. Now, since Israel's already facing forces from Iran, Syria, and Hezbollah on their northern border, they're trying to do everything possible to keep Russia from becoming an active enemy in the region. Now, it's not clear how long Israel can continue to maintain this neutral approach in regards to Ukraine. 
Russia will likely become more bellicose in defending those who still actively support them. And uh, that right now is including Syria and Iran. So Russia's actions in Ukraine will likely spill over into other conflicts around the world. And one of those could eventually involve Israel and her neighbors. Hmm. Well, it makes sense. Yeah. A question that uh, many believers here in the U.S. have asked, Charlie, how many Messianic Jews actually live in Israel? And what's the status of the different Messianic congregations and ministries? Recent reports out of Israel seem to provide answers while also raising some questions. So what do we know about Jewish followers of Yeshua in Israel? Well, a new book was put out that's entitled Jesus Believing Israelis, Exploring Messianic Fellowships, and it was released last month from the Kaspari Center of Jerusalem. It's based on a national survey of Messianic Yeshua believers, as they call them. Uh, they acknowledge that not all Israeli congregations agreed to be included in the survey, but it represents as accurate a picture as can be painted. Now, I'd heard reports in the past of the number of Messianic believers, and it varied widely. Uh, this three-year project actually provides the most accurate snapshot of how many followers of Yeshua there are in Israel and how many Messianic congregations there are. And here are some of the key findings, John. The total number of believers they estimate at just over 15,300. And that includes both adults and children. And the confirmed number of Messianic fellowships in Israel is about 280. Of that number, 136 are Russian-speaking, 83 are Hebrew-speaking, and the others conduct services in Amharic, English, Spanish, and Romanian. Now, about the time this book appeared, another event took place among the Messianic congregations in Israel. After a four-year struggle within the congregations, the leadership finally addressed an issue that had threatened to divide the groups. Uh, the conflict centered on a group of Messianic congregations that are holding to a more charismatic approach to spiritual gifts, uh, including the belief that the gift of apostle and prophet along with other sign gifts, are to be exercised today. Hmm. In the end, the congregations decided not to adopt or reject those beliefs, but to affirm the overall unity of the body of Christ in Israel. And what we need to hope is that the different groups can keep their ultimate focus on Yeshua, on Jesus and his word, and not become fragmented. Of course, that's a challenge for all believers everywhere. Here on The Land and the Book, we're looking at current events from the Middle East for this past week with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Story number three, lead ingots found off the coast of Caesarea are helping archaeologists rewrite the history of Cyprus and trade during the Bronze Age. What's the story behind these seemingly insignificant pieces of lead? Well, the late Bronze Age, which was roughly around the time of Israel's exodus from Egypt, was a time of trade and diplomacy among the superpowers of the day that ringed the Mediterranean, and yet those powers suffered a catastrophic collapse. Now, these seemingly insignificant pieces of lead illustrate just how extensive those trade relations were. Now, the lead ingots were incised with the Cipro-Minoan writing. It's an alphabet that remains undeciphered, but it was used in both Cyprus and in Crete. Isotope analysis of the ingots revealed that the lead was mined on the island of Sardinia to the west of Italy. Cyprus was rich in copper, and it's the combination of copper and lead and tin that produced bronze. So likely the ship that sank was delivering this load of lead somewhere in the eastern Mediterranean. Archaeologists believe the discovery shows the significance Cyprus played in the latter part of the Bronze Age. Cyprus was importing lead from Sardinia and then exporting and trading it with others. Now, the Bible talks about the ships of Ketim, which was the biblical name for Cyprus. 
And now archaeologists are understanding just how far afield these ships from Cyprus were traveling and trading, literally from one end of the Mediterranean to the other. Wow. Well, Alzheimer's, dementia, and Parkinson's are feared diseases for which, at least right now, there is no known cure. But researchers in Amazing Israel are making headway in looking for ways to treat them. What's the latest news on these diseases coming out of Amazing Israel, Charlie? Well, two reports out of Israel suggest new ways to spot the onset of the diseases earlier, uh, months or years before current methods. The first comes from a startup company based in Tel Aviv called Neuralight. It's N-E-U-R-A-L-I-G-H-T. Their platform uses a smartphone to measure microscopic eye movements that serve as digital endpoints for neurological disorders. The physician records a five-minute video of a patient's eyes. Neuralight's imaging tools then clean up the video before artificial intelligence deciphers what's behind the eye movements, analyzing close to 100 parameters. The goal is to spot neurological problems like dementia and Parkinson's long before other symptoms become visible, allowing for earlier treatment. Uh, They're beginning clinical trials now, and they hope to receive FDA clearance by the end of the year. The second development comes out of Tel Aviv University, where researchers discovered that certain brain activity precedes the onset of Alzheimer's symptoms, uh, sometimes by years. Using mice, they measured the hippocampal region of the brain while the animals were in various states of consciousness. And they found that while activity decreases during sleep in healthy animals, it increased in animals in the early stages of Alzheimer's. While others are searching for long-term cures for these diseases, the scientists in Amazing Israel are also looking for ways to diagnose the problem years before they cause obvious symptoms. Now, hopefully, This will allow drugs that slow the progression of Alzheimer's and other neurological disorders to be used far earlier before major symptoms even develop. Hmm. Charlie, I think it's interesting when we get email from people, the number of listeners who happen to listen via the podcast. For somebody who isn't familiar, talk about the podcast and its advantages and its availability. Oh, it's great because people can go online, get the uh, Moody app, or uh, even listen online by their computer. What it allows them to do is to listen to this program anytime uh, when it fits their schedule throughout the week or to listen to the program again. All right, check it out. And the Moody Radio app is free, by the way, for your Android phone, your iPhone. Just search for Moody Radio. An eye-opening conversation on anti-Semitism up next on The Land and the Book. A recent study conducted by Cal State University showed that within New York City, there has been a reported 96% increase in hate crimes, and Jewish Americans remained the most targeted group. Overall, there has been a dramatic 46% surge in hate crimes across the country. What is fueling this? We'll talk about it next on The Land and the Book. Hey, welcome to segment two of our broadcast. I'm John Geiger, if we haven't met, and... Before we get to today's guest, let's check in for a quick idea on how you and I can show the love of Jesus to our Jewish friends, neighbors, and co-workers. Do Jewish people need Jesus to go to heaven? Believe it or not, there are some folks who say they probably don't. Greg Sabat, what do you think? Well, I think it's very clear in the Bible that Jesus is the way, and the truth, and the life, and his death and resurrection is the only way. 
Uh, we serve a holy God, but a lot of Jewish people like to say, well, I'm a good person. And I like to do this analysis that Jewish people at the age of 13, that's when they're accountable. That's when they have their bar mitzvah. So I say to a Jewish person, let's start at the age of 13 and let's give the age of a person at 80 years. And that's the common one if you Google it for the national statistics. So let's just say for conservative uses, you have 10 sins a day. So that's 67 years times 365 days a year times 10 sins, which is very conservative, you're going to stand before a holy God with over 250,000 sins. Mm -hmm. So if you have a quarter of a million sins, how is a holy God going to accept you into the universe? So I like to use that analogy for a person that says, I'm a good person. And what is the response? What do you do then with the conversation? I say, well, you definitely you agree that you need a savior, that your sins are forgiven. So I tell them about John 5, 24, where Jesus says, I say, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is passed over from death to life. I let them know they do have an answer. And the answer is not doing more good works. Greg Savitt is director of Jewish evangelism for Rock of Israel and joins us on The Land and the Book. Scott Phillips serves as the chief executive officer of Passages. Scott is passionate about connecting next-generation Christian leaders with the deep biblical roots of their faith and introducing them to the people and places of Israel. Scott lived for three years in Israel with his wife, Ashley, and before that was a staff pastor in a local church in the Dallas area. It's great to have you on the program again, Scott. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Well, whether it's the Beth Israel Synagogue hostage crisis or the Tree of Life Synagogue or synagogue shootings, these attacks seem to be growing in both frequency and intensity. The obvious question is, why? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think, obviously, anti-Semitism is old as the Jewish people. It's been around for thousands of years, and it just takes different sort of iterations, generation to generation. So today, whether it be on, you know, the far right with conspiracy theories, repeating age-old tropes against the Jewish people, or whether it be far-left anti-Israel sentiment, or whether it be, you know, from sort of the extreme Islam anti-Semitic attitudes, or whether it's uh, more minor, so to speak, and you just hear someone, you know, using tropes that have been used against the Jewish people for, for years, um, anti-Semitism is on the rise. And, you know, I think it could be for a number of reasons. But I think the main thing is that we as Christians, when we hear it, when we see it, we stand against it and stand with our friends. How much of our American media narrative factors into this? I mean, you know, you hear constant stories that project Israel as the bad guy, the Goliath in the story, Israel being evil occupiers. How much does that feed into the violence? Well, I think that is definitely a bias that we see in the news. Our students see it on campus. And so, uh, you know, it does feed, and it's certainly not helpful. And, you know, the, the key for us at Passages is to really take students to Israel to let them see it for themselves and get the facts straight on their own so that when they hear it on the news or when they hear it on campus, they can say they've been there. They've yeah. experienced it firsthand. What is the typical age range for students that you take to Israel? We take students currently ages 18 to 30. It's mostly undergrads, but we have some grad students that join us as well. And, and it's a unique arrangement. Uh, it is not the typical price that I might pay if I were 
taking a, you know, a, a two-week tour to Israel, you've made it a little bit more affordable for these people who are in school and don't have the kind of money to travel. That's right. We, we really do feel it's important, you know, to make this uh, affordable, uh, attainable for young people, because really our mission is to introduce young people, you know, when they're at the very beginning of their leadership journeys, no matter what field they're going into, to be able to to be able to go to Israel and have that life-changing foundation, that life-changing experience. And so we do have generous donors who help to provide scholarships. And so we award scholarships at, at different levels, um, depending on a number of factors. But certainly, you know, a trip to Israel, like passages, would cost at least $5,000 out there in the market. Yeah. We're talking with Scott Phillips, Chief Executive Officer of Passages, and our focus is anti-Semitism. And, and we don't think of America as being anti-Semitic, but... I just read that roughly 30% of all anti-Semitic incidents reported worldwide in 2021 occurred right here in the USA. That's according to data published by the Jewish Agency and World Zionist Organization. What's different about the America of today, Scott, that would allow for this 30% figure? You know, it, it is quite shocking. Uh, 30% of these attacks happen in the U.S. And, um, you know, and, and what's very sad, obviously, provokes our attention is that most U.S. Jews feel afraid to be outwardly Jewish on the streets. You know, you hear incident after incident of these uh, hate crimes that are happening in New York and other places, even here in our backyard in Texas, uh, you know, just a synagogue in a a small suburb of Dallas um, is still not safe. And so, you know, I think uh, whether it be the rise in, in ability to communicate via social media, whatever it is, you know, it's something that we have to watch out for. We can't take it for granted. And even though we can say, you know, America is not anti-Semitic necessarily, or we don't perceive it that way, uh, you know, we, we know that history tells a different story, that when we get uh, complacent and take things for granted like that, bad things happen. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, it, it's one thing to say, you know, these incidents are happening and they, they are being reported in the media, typically, mm-hmm. but to either not severely enough condemn them or to not police them sufficiently or punish them sufficiently, you know, you go from that to eventually the slippery slope where maybe you don't report them at all. I mean, the whole thing is one long slide and we're at an unhappy place on that slide. That's right. And that's why, you know, the work that we do to really help educate and expose the next generation of Christian church leaders, business leaders, political policy leaders, expose them to both Israel and the story of the Jewish people is so important so that they can understand right away and identify when they hear something anti-Semitic or when they see something anti-Semitic or anti-Israel. They're able to know that and know the history of it, and then they're able to act. Sorry, it's not a real fun conversation today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger talking with the Chief Executive Officer of Passages, Scott Phillips. Anti-Semitism, our our focus. A bit more disturbing data to share. The U.S. had the second largest number of anti-Semitic incidents reported last year after Europe. Broken down by state, New York had the largest number of anti-Semitic incidents in 2021, followed by California, Florida, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania. Then, of course, we think of Texas. You just mentioned that, where a gunman held four people hostage at a synagogue recently, ranking at number six. Does any of this surprise you, Scott? Well, I mean, it's always surprising, and it never should be not shocking to us. But again, this story is as old as the Jewish people are, have been, you know, around. And so in that sense, it's not surprising. 
And, um, you know, I think what did take a lot of people for surprise and, and the Jewish community in Dallas by surprise is that it happened here in Dallas. I was speaking with a local Jewish community member weeks before this attack happened on the synagogue. And they said, you know, we're very lucky. Uh, we don't have a lot of anti-Semitic events happening, you know, in Dallas. And then unfortunately, just a few weeks later, we had what happened in Colleyville at the Beth Israel Synagogue. So um, it should shock us. Um, it's not surprising in the sense of this has been around for a long time and uh, should motivate us, I think, to stand with the Jewish people. Scott, you travel to Israel a lot. How do Israelis perceive the steady rise of anti-Semitism in the United States? Never heard that angle before. You know, that's a good question and one that I haven't thought much about either in the sense of, uh, obviously, when they see things like this, it's shocking, maybe surprising. Um, Of course, the view a lot of times is that that doesn't really happen in America. But unfortunately, in the last few years, it's risen, you know, and so Israelis, obviously, they're, they're Jewish, and they live in the Jewish state, in the Jewish homeland. And so, you know, I'm sure it's incredibly shocking to them. Yeah. It seems to me we often overlook the spiritual component to this discussion, as if anti-Semitism was merely a social ill, right. you know, a bad behavior that uh, you know, was passed on from one generation to the next. How much of all of this is driven by the devil himself? Well, I mean, I think that's a great point, right? I think that one of the drivers, you know, foundational drivers for anti-Semitism very well could be that the Jewish people brought morality into the world. They brought the knowledge of the God of Israel into the world. And of course, we as Christians are built on the foundation of that knowledge of the God of Israel. And, you know, of course, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And so, you know, the world many times can have this hatred toward God. And it would make sense to put those pieces together that the people who brought this morality, this knowledge of God into the world would be victims of the world's hatred toward God. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that it very well could be a spiritual thing. Certainly, you know, I believe that uh, God made a promise to Abraham, and that promise extends to the Jewish people of today, and that they would be his people. And certainly we have an enemy that does not like the things that God likes. And so I think that's a big part of it. So how do we, on a practical level, fight this ultimately spiritual battle we're talking about here then? Well, I think number one is education. I think so many great churches out there across the United States teaching the Bible, teaching people how to love God and giving that, them that experience. But I think many times these days you don't see a lot of churches from the pulpit talk about Israel or talk about the Jewish people. It's really many times a non-issue, which I think explains why so many young Christians are very just neutral on the subject of Israel or don't know much about the Jewish people or anti-Semitism because they don't hear it in church, maybe as much as a previous generation would. And so I think education is number one. We have to learn about the Jewish people because we love them, right? We want to learn about the people that we care about and learn about their history and learn about, you know, modern anti-Semitism. And then I think number two is building relationships unconditional relationships based on respect and shared values with our Jewish friends is really that sort of that second layer after education. The third is to stand up and show up, whether it's a conversation you're in with a friend and, you know, they use an anti-Semitic trope, maybe they didn't mean to, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's ingrained in society. Well, we can just lightly and with grace correct it. Or whether it's a synagogue shooting, you know, go show up at that synagogue and show your support. You know, obviously prayer, 
but also, you know, standing up and showing up and saying, you know, we're here with you and you're not alone. That's really key. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have to let our Jewish friends know that we stand with them, stand for them. And we have a biblical foundation for that, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, you mentioned prayer. How do we pray specifically against anti-Semitism? I think that we just align, you know, align ourselves with God's heart, right? With what he cares about. And in that alignment, um, you know, we pray because prayer is powerful. Because it does say in, in you know, the Hebrew prophets, right, uh, toward the Jewish people first, this verse that no weapon formed against them will prosper. And that was first to the Jewish people, to the Israelites. And so I think we can pray that in its original context and really just believe that the Lord will stop anti-Semitic attacks and will, you know, bring knowledge and revelation from him about the Jewish people. And I think that's how we can pray. Scott, we're going to link uh, your website to ours, but when people do visit passages, what do they find at your website? Absolutely. They can find, of course, more information about passages and our mission uh, to help young people discover their roots, to encounter modern Israel, and then, and then tell their story back home. And uh, for those who have a student, or maybe a student is listening, who would uh, benefit from an experience like a trip to Israel, uh, they can find that on our website. Also, you know, if... Uh, we rely on generous donors for scholarships. Uh, so whether that's a $5 donation or a million-dollar donation, you know, all of it goes toward scholarships for these young people to really change the hearts and minds of the next generation of Christian leaders. So you can find that on our website as well. Again, a link to their website at ours, thelandandthebook.org. Thank you, Scott. Really appreciate your tackling this uh, rather uncomfortable subject of anti-Semitism. Look forward to having you back. Charlie Dyer's coming back next, and I hope you'll stay around for his uh, take on your questions next on The Land and the Book. This next segment on The Land and the Book is a favorite for so many, I bet it might just be yours as well. Welcome back. I'm John Geiger asking, what does Passover have to do with us as believers in Jesus? You might think you know the answer, but have you ever experienced a Passover Seder? Well, good news, this year you can. That's right, John. Our friends at Life and Messiah have a special offer just for you in the lead-up to this year's Passover. To any listener who signs up at lifeinmessiah.org, they'll send you a free Messianic Passover Haggadah. This booklet will guide you through this ancient celebration to help you see the connections with Jesus our Messiah and the Last Supper. In addition, Life and Messiah is making their interactive Passover Seder available to you for free. With this video and the Haggadah, you can celebrate the richness of Passover this year with your family and friends. So visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button for more information and to sign up. All right, let's dig into today's questions here on The Land and the Book with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, always curious to find out what you're curious about, like this question from Alan. He says, my wife and I enjoy listening to The Land and the Book over the Internet on Saturdays. From a biblical prophecy viewpoint, Charlie, what are your thoughts on the new U.N. statue called the Guardian of International Peace and Security? Yeah, I did see pictures of the statue and read some of the comments people have written, but Personally, I don't see a connection between the statue and the beast in Daniel chapter 7 or Revelation chapter 13. 
The statue was sent by the governor of the state of Oaxaca in Mexico. It's designed to represent the power of Mexican culture. Now, although at first glance, the statue might seem to look like the beast pictured in the Bible, uh, here's where the connection falls short. According to the artist's own description, the statue is a fusion of a jaguar and an eagle. However, in the Bible, the beast is specifically said to be a combination of a lion, bear, eagle, and leopard. Uh, The beast in the Bible is also said to have seven heads and ten horns. Now, apart from eagle's wings, the statue doesn't correspond to the Bible's description at all. And the statue at the UN was designed to picture the power of Mexico, while the beast in Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 points to an end-time world power, as well as the person who will rule it. And according to Daniel 2 and 7, that final end-time power will come from what was the fourth world empire that arose to rule over the people of God. Now, historically, that was Rome. So the final end-time power will be a revived Roman empire, not the UN. Now, I think this is a case where people are trying to find end-time prophecy in something that only bears a superficial likeness to a vision that, when interpreted, has nothing to do with Mexico or the UN. Carol listens to us on WMBW in Chattanooga, a great Moody radio station. She says, I'm studying Ezekiel and wondering if there exists an illustrated, simplified commentary study book. Although no one can precisely replicate some of the visions, I think it would be helpful. Do you know of such a book? You know, a children's version wouldn't insult me at all. I enjoy listening. Yeah, and Kara, I wish I had a good illustrated book on Ezekiel that I could recommend, but unfortunately I don't. I wrote the Ezekiel commentary for the the Bible Knowledge Commentary Old Testament, and I did include some diagrams there showing the dimensions of the temple in the last few chapters of the book, but I didn't include any other visualizations. Now, I have a friend in Sweden who's working on charts and illustrations for the entire Bible, and I've seen some of his material, and it's well done. Unfortunately, right now, it's only available in Swedish. But if you Google Jonas Dagson, D-A-G-S-O-N, Steg for Steg, S-T-E-G for S-T-E-G. You can find some information. Uh, That book on the Old Testament is called Gamla Testamentet. Apart from Jonas's work, I don't know of anything else. And Hmm. if someone's listening and is an artist, that would be a great project. Interesting question here from Jeff. He says, I was wondering how the Israelites cooked and heated their houses. Doesn't appear that there are that many trees or brush to burn. Did they have a community stove that the villagers came to to prepare their meals? Or did each home have some sort of oven that the cook would use and uh, also something to heat their home. Yeah, we don't have direct answers, but uh, we do have several clues. You know, in Numbers 15, uh, around verses 32 to 33, a man was caught gathering wood on the Sabbath day. And in 1 Kings 17, uh, Elijah encounters the widow of Zarephath as she was gathering sticks to prepare a fire to cook a meal using the last of her flour and olive oil. Now, in both instances, Uh, It looks like the individuals were out foraging for branches, twigs, or what other wood they could find. So apparently most people could find sufficient wood in the immediate area uh, to prepare their own cooking fire. A second illustration, I think, can be found in the account of the offering of Isaac in Genesis 22. Abraham was living in Beersheba when God called him to sacrifice Isaac in the land of Moriah, which turned out to be a three-day journey away. Now, since Abraham didn't know the exact spot to which he was heading, Part of his preparation required him to split wood for the burnt offering. Now, that suggests he was gathering and splitting larger pieces of wood, which must have been available even in the Negev. When a city was placed under siege, people couldn't go out and forage for wood, and that created a problem which they solved through the use of dried dung. In having Ezekiel act out what would happen in Jerusalem during the Babylonian siege, 
God told him to eat starvation rations as a barley cake, God says, having baked it in their sight over human dung. Uh, Ezekiel expressed concern over that since God had given specific instructions on how to dispose of human excrement. So God then allowed Ezekiel to use cow dung in Ezekiel 4.15. So evidently dried cow chips or cow patties could also be used for fuel on some occasions. Now, in terms of heating homes, there was no indoor heating as we understand it, at least in the average person's home, apart from a small fire used to cook their meals. The people tried to spend as much time as possible outside in the sunshine and then use blankets or robes to help stay warm at night. Now, the wealthy did have some other sources for keeping warm. Here's another one of those odd passages. In Jeremiah 36, the prophet adds a tiny detail to explain how King Jehoiakim was able to burn the prophet's scroll. He says, it was the ninth month, that's November, December, and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. So with those tiny details, that's about all we know in terms of how they made their fires. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. It's segment three, questions and answers. Yours is always welcome at The Land and the Book at moody.edu. Elsie says, uh, many believers pray to God and not the Father. I address God as Father when I pray because He is my Father. He's the Father of all believers, and I feel He should be addressed as such. Would you agree? Well, I need to answer two ways. Uh, First, the normal object of prayer in the Bible is God the Father, just like you're saying. When Jesus gave the model for prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, in Matthew 6, he taught the disciples to address their prayer to our Father in heaven. Uh, In the book of Ephesians, Paul prays to the Father for those believers. You can see that in Ephesians chapter 1 in his prayer, and again in chapter 3 when he prays. Uh, Paul reminded Timothy that Jesus is the mediator between God and man, And that's often why we pray to God in the name or authority of Jesus. Paul also taught that the role of the Holy Spirit in prayer is to intercede when we're not even sure what specifically we ought to be praying for. Uh, And that's Romans chapter 8. Now, while God the Father is the normal object of prayer in the Bible, there are some exceptions which suggest that praying to Jesus isn't prohibited. Paul begins his letter to the Corinthians, in in fact, in 1 Corinthians 1-2, by saying, Believers, call on the name of Jesus. And he ends by directly calling on the Lord to return. And in chapter 16, he says, Maranatha, which in Aramaic means, come, O Lord. And the next to the last verse of the book of Revelation, John also responds to Jesus' words by saying, amen, come, Lord Jesus. Now, if I put all that together, I'd say the normal way we should pray is to God the Father in the name or authority of God the Son with the help of God the Holy Spirit. However, we can't say it's wrong to at times pray to Jesus. Bob says, as I understand scripture, we will be like the angels when we go to heaven. Angels do not get married. I've been fortunate to be married to my beautiful wife for 46 years. Our love for each other grows throughout the years. I don't worry about dying and going to heaven, but I am concerned that I may not be with and or recognize my wife when we get to heaven. I do indeed want to go to heaven and interact with God and the others who are there, but I also want to be with my wife for eternity. What is your thought on this subject? Well, the only direct answer we have is the words Jesus gave and that trick question that he was asked by the, the Sadducees. You know, they, the woman who's married multiple times and they said, you know, whose husband will she be? And he said, in the resurrection, they would neither marry nor are given a marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So according to Jesus, a marriage relationship between a husband and wife doesn't continue on into eternity. Paul uses the reality that marriage only continues through this life as an illustration in Romans 7. And his point there is that physical death releases a person from a personal commitment, even something as intimate as a marriage relationship. But I do have a few other observations that 
might provide an additional measure of comfort. First, the Bible does teach we'll recognize others in heaven. In Jesus's parable of the rich man and Lazarus, both Abraham and the rich man recognize each other. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul offered comfort to the believers in Thessalonica by telling them that the dead in Christ will be raised, followed by those believers who are still alive. And I believe the part of the comfort was the fact that they would see and recognize their believing loved ones who'd passed away. So I think our struggle, though, is we can't even begin to imagine what it's going to be like in our new glorified bodies in heaven when we fully see Jesus. It's not that we'll love our spouses any less. We'll love them and others in a totally different capacity. Thank you for sending in those questions to us today. I hope you enjoyed that segment. I always do. Charlie's back in just a moment with his devotional. You don't want to miss it. It's next on The Land and the Book. It is doubtful that in the nation of Israel there is a more sobering spot than the place Dr. Charlie Dyer is about to take us. I'm John Geiger, hoping you'll stick around for Charlie's devotional on the land and the book. First, though, this testimony from someone who traveled with us on our Seven Churches of Revelation tour to the land of Turkey. I'm Judy from Green Acres, Florida. I was privileged to travel with Land in the Book number one to Israel in 2011, and now I'm on the Land in the Book tour of the Revelation churches in Turkey, October 2014. I love traveling with the Land in the Book team. Charlie and Kathy Dyer, John and Diana Geiger, and Dan and Joan Anderson, and a very special group from the Body of Christ, all of us traveling in the unity and love of the Lord. What brings the experience to life for me is when Dr. Dyer shares his devotions at the different sites, because then where I've traveled and what I've seen and heard comes alive through the pages of scripture and Dr. Dyer's real life applications. I praise God for Dr. Dyer and the Land in the Book team for making this opportunity possible for me and so many others great perspective, and it's always fun not to just hear from our listeners, but to travel with them as well. Well, Charlie, I don't think I'm overstating it when I say the place you're about to take us is one of Israel's all-time most sobering spots. It is, John, and I think somebody listening might say, what's it doing in the middle of your segment on five favorite places in Israel? Uh, We're on number three on my list, and we're heading to Yad Vashem. If you've not been to Israel, it's likely you don't even know what Yad Vashem is. And if you've been to Israel, it's likely you're wondering, why in the world would I include it in this list of five favorite places? So let's stop by this small carob tree, and I'll explain. Yad Vashem sounds like two words, but in Hebrew, it's actually three words. The first word is Yad. Uh, That's the Hebrew word for hand, but it can also refer to a memorial, and that's how it's being used in this expression. Now, the second word is actually the single Hebrew letter vav. It's the va sound in that second word, vashem. It's the word and. The last part of that word, shem, is the Hebrew word for name. So yad vashem means a memorial and a name. The phrase comes right from Isaiah 56.5. There the prophet recorded God's message of hope and comfort to Israel. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name 
better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off, a memorial and a name. That's the Hebrew phrase, Yad Vashem. This is Israel's official memorial to the victims of the Holocaust. Now, as we drove into Yad Vashem, you might have noticed the gates that were made to look like the barbed wire of a Nazi concentration camp. We just walked down the avenue of the righteous among the nations to come to this spot where we're now standing. Each carob tree we passed represents a Gentile person or family who risked their lives to save a Jewish person during the Holocaust. It's a wonderful tribute to those brave individuals, but it's also saddening to see how few trees there are. Most Gentiles stood by and did nothing during that dark period, including many who claimed to be followers of Jesus. But why are we standing beside this rather small carob tree? We passed scores of trees that are larger and more majestic. This one almost seems out of place. Actually, it's a relatively new tree. The original one died and had to be replaced. But look carefully at the sign at the base of the tree. It reads, Corey Tenboom and Father Casper and Sister Elizabeth. This tree was planted in honor of Corey Tenboom and her family. These natives from Holland risked their lives to protect a group of Jews fleeing Nazi persecution. Sadly, someone turned in the family. They were arrested and sent to a concentration camp. Corey survived, but her father and sister perished. After the war, Corey ministered in Holland and Germany. In her book, The Hiding Place, she wrote about an experience she had after the war when she met one of the guards from the concentration camps. She wrote, in part, It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the first SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it's not on our forgiveness, any more than on our goodness, that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. In another place, Corey described the amazing lesson on forgiveness that God taught her through that horrific experience. Forgiveness, she writes, is the key which unlocks the door of resentment 
and the handcuffs of hatred. It breaks the chains of bitterness and the shackles of selfishness. Forgiveness is to set the prisoner free and then to realize the prisoner was you. In just a moment, I'm going to turn you loose to explore Yad Vashem on your own, at your own pace. To reach the entrance to the museum, just head back along the Avenue of the Righteous Among the Nations that we followed to reach this spot. Take time to view the exhibits and to learn the lessons we so desperately need to learn from that somber memorial. But before you leave, take one last look at Corey Ten Boom's tree and remember her lesson on forgiveness. Few will ever experience the horrors she went through in that concentration camp. But all of us will experience the pain of rejection and loss. And many will feel the sting of anger, prejudice, and hatred. In those times, we will struggle with forgiveness. Jesus told us to pray, Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And while on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus understands what it means to forgive. In calling on us to forgive our enemies, he's only asking us to do what he himself has already done. It might sound hard, but forgiveness releases you from the cancer of anger and thoughts of revenge that can eat away at your very soul. The next time you struggle to forgive, remember this little tree and Corey Ten Boom's profound discovery. Forgiveness is to set the prisoner free, and then to realize the prisoner was you. Wow. Very, very powerful imagery there. Thank you, Charlie, for that great devotional. And I know that uh, any number of listeners right now really relate very specifically to what has been shared from their own issues of forgiveness, and perhaps uh, through a visit to Yad Vashem was just uh, talking to our producer, Dan Anderson. Every time we go, I feel like I'm, I'm being kicked in the stomach and uh, you just feel weak after it. On the other hand, to understand uh, the forgiveness that has taken place, the healing, to see the possibility for restoration. Wow, a very sobering thought. Love to have you visit our website, thelandandthebook.org. Any number of interesting tabs you can click there, including the Books tab, It'll uh, give you an update on books that Charlie Dyer has written, a book I've got there as well. We've got uh, updates on our guests, past, present, and future. Information you'll want to check out and much more at thelandandthebook.org, including a link to our Facebook page. Neat way to stay connected throughout the week with fresh stories that come in. Charlie Dyer posts photos and lots of great stuff there at the Facebook page. Best accessed by going first to thelandandthebook.org. And we would appreciate it if you tell a friend about the program. You know, we don't have any advertising budget here. If the land and the book means something to you, would you share us with a friend? Tell them where they can listen as well. Thanks for doing that. I'm John Gager for our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, and our producer, Dan Anderson. Thank you for listening. See you back next week for more of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.